Good afternoon, everyone. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 9. Verse 1. And now heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of, the, of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Were they restored for themselves? Were they sacrificed? Were they finished up in a day? Were they revived the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down the stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the walls were joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sembala and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and said a God as a protection against them day and night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so with that, can I invite you to just stand with me as we have our gospel reading. The gospel reading for this morning can be found in the ninth chapter according to the gospel of St. Luke, reading at the 37th verse. Glory to Christ our Saviour. Luke's gospel, chapter 9, reading from verses 37 to verse 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him <coughs> and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciple to cast it out, but they could not. Verse, 30, verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ our Lord. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? <clears throat> so gracious Father, as we come before you, we ask of you, Lord, that as we look afresh to your word, 
May your word that comes out from my mouth will not return back empty, that it will accomplish all that is supposed to accomplish in this purpose. And we pray, Lord, that truly it will bring success to the things for which it has been sent forth. So come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, to our minds, that we may be obedient and responsive to what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, will you please be seated? <coughs> you know, Andrew Bonner, a Scottish Presbyterian minister and very close friend of the great preacher D.L. Moody, once told Moody these very wise words that I believe holds true for all of us as Christ's disciples. He said this, Let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. Now, let me repeat this again as you try to digest what he's trying to say. Let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. You see, the warning here from Bonner is simply that when things are going well, be prepared. Be prepared. Get ready. Anticipate for any forms of opposition. Why? Well, for a very simple reason, that the enemy is never going to let us off easily. You see, the devil doesn't want us to progress in the work of the Lord. If your spiritual life is growing, he's not happy. He wants to stop that progress, he, he, and he will surely bring about opposition in your life. And for that matter, we only have to look at scriptures to support this very claim. <coughs> We see how in scriptures, the prophet Elijah, after a resounding victory over the false prophets of Baal, what happened? He faced opposition. He faced opposition in the form of the evil and wicked queen Jezebel, who wanted to kill him. Afraid, we know the story that Elijah eventually had to flee for his life. The apostles are yet another case in point. And as I read to you in the gospel passage just a while ago, you find that in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus had given them the power, Jesus had given them the authority to go out to preach to the kingdom. And when they came back, they were performing great works. They shared what, how they have done, you know, how demons flee for them. And yet suddenly, right now, they find in this situation that they are unable to heal a boy with an unclean spirit. Oppositions came to the disciples. And perhaps the person who encountered fiercer and more sustained opposition is none other than the 18th century evangelist, George Whitfield. Whitfield, as a young Anglican clergyman, he would often preach to crowds that is well over 50,000 people in the open air. And mind you, this was done without any microphone or any loudspeakers. Yet, despite of his great success in reaching out to the masses, we are told that opposition came in the form of his very own church, where the godless ministers closed their doors to his ministry. You see, Whitfield was opposed by his very own denomination for spreading the good news because he used a different convention. And of course, we cannot forget that our Lord Jesus himself, he faced opposition from his very own people. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24, he declared these words, that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So problems do come arise, 
and especially when things are going well in our lives. <coughs> See, the problem with us is that we are so accustomed to nice paved road and leveled walkways that we find that problems will never come to us. But unfortunately, we know that this is not the way life is. Yes, sometimes the road is easy, the birds are singing in the air, life seems wonderful. At times, oppositions will arise. The road will be rocky, it will be bumpy, and we hear no music at all. But when that happens, what do we do? Complain? We give up? You know, Warren Winesby shared this illustration on this particular matter. <clears throat> he shared a story that a little boy was leading his sister up on a rocky and bumpy road. And while they were walking up, the girl complained to the brother, you know, that the path is so difficult and that it is full of bumps. And to this, the little boy replied this to his sister. Sure, the bumps are there, but the bumps are what you climb on. What profound words from a young boy, isn't it? Listen again to what he told the sister, that the bombs may be there, but the bombs are what you climb on. So the question for all of us is this, what do you do when the bombs of opposition cross your path of life? As disciples and leaders of Christ, what do we do? Do we complain? Do we give up? Or do we learn from the boy that in facing these bumps, we overcome them by climbing <coughs> over it? You see, no test of leadership is more revealing than this test of opposition in our life. Christian leaders will crack and go to pieces under such immense pressure. Some will grow discouraged to continue on, while others, because of this opposition, they build walls around themselves and then they shoot murderously from behind. They become embattled, embittered, and vindicative. But you know, we don't find this in the man Nehemiah. We find that today, in handling great opposition, Nehemiah was a man who remained steadfast. And just to do a quick recall, we find that after he successfully, you know, getting permission of leave and approval of the necessary resources from the Persian king in chapter 2, and then on top of that, he managed to convince his fellow countrymen in the previous chapter to rebuild the walls, we would be forgiven to think that, you know, all is well. Everything is going according to plan. No problem. All is good. But as we read in today's passage, opposition will come. And the opposition arose in the form of this man called Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. In fact, these two men, we have come across them, but I think two weeks back. These two men were the men who opposed, were enemies who opposed Nehemiah's work, and we, we see them in as early as chapter 2, verse 10. And so know for sure that looking behind every human opponent is this active presence of the devil in wanting to thwart God's project. And for sure, Sembalat and Tobiah, these two are the lackeys of Satan. And it is through these two men that Satan uses many forms of opposition just to disrupt 
God's divine work. And as you will see over the next few chapters, are listed down and you can look at the screen, the eight different forms of opposition that the enemy uses to prevent the success and the progress of God's work. But for today, we will only cover the first two, and in the following week, I will continue on on this area of discouragement and fear. So let's look at ridicule and mockery. Now, it is not unusual to find that the enemy to throw insults at the servants of God. Why? Because this is a telling weapon in destroying moral, morale, rather. You find that in the, in, in, in the Old Testament, you know, when David took the challenge to, 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 to fight against Goliath, Goliath ridiculed young David in 1 Samuel 17 verse 43. He faced David and he said this, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And then we find that Jesus himself <coughs> was mocked by soldiers during his trials. The people who mocked him say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And then if you recall back in chapter 2, verse 19, Sembalat and the company used mockery of the Jews even before the work of rebuilding had started. They mocked Nehemiah and his group by saying, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against this king? And now in this chapter, we see that Sembalat continued his mocking by throwing five further questions, and each of them can be seen like a poison arrow that was meant to puncture the morale of the builders. So let us look briefly at each of them. <coughs> the first question that was targeted and thrown at them was this in verse 2. What are those feeble Jews doing? You find that the first question here was a direct target and a ridicule on the Jewish people. You find that the poison in this first question lies in the way it describes the workers as feeble Jews. It's telling the people that you are hopeless, you are useless. Now, if you really want to hurt someone with words, you know, all you need to do is not to exaggerate the wound, but just simply pick on the truth that is sensitive. So, for example, you want to hurt an overweight man, what do you do? Just call him fatso. Call him Barney the dinosaur, you know. Call him whatever that, 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 that will hit him sensitively. Or to a handicapped person, refer him to as, as a damn cripple. You see, sticks and stones may or may not break bones, but may no mistakes. Mocking words can wound deeply as those of us who have been mocked before would know and testify. And you find that that's the intention of Sembalat in saying that the Jews are feeble. He was merely targeting them as a being, that you as a Jew, you are hopeless, you are useless, you can't do anything at all. It is to imply that they are miserable, they are incompetent lot. It was simply a truthful reminder of that inferior being of being a disgraced nation. And the truth of a powerful, hurtful word is that, you know, when you call someone stupid or you call someone useless, the truth is that person 
may end up thinking, believing, and behaving as one who is stupid and useless. So that's the power of hurting words. That's the power of words that is jeering. And you find that Sambalat didn't stop here. We find that his second arrow follows the first without a pause. He says, will they now restore it for themselves? You see, while the first question ridiculed the workers, the second question ridiculed the work that they were doing. So what was Sambalat doing? He was simply planting doubts into the minds of the workers. And we find that nothing is more damaging to the project that is being under, undertaken than to hear doubts and uncertainty being echoed all around. So can you imagine if one day all saints start a rebuilding project, you know, and then people at the same time are beginning to spread doubts over the finance and the purpose of the project, what will happen? It will certainly demoralize the people and the work which were to be affected. And this is exactly what happened in one of my experience in one of the churches that I was in, and I will not mention which church. This particular church that I was in, they were all ready to plan for an extension. They had the plans ready, they had the finance ready, you know, and that year was the year where they were all prepared to go into the rebuilding project until someone dropped the bombshell. Someone began to challenge, you know, be began to, to, to ridicule the whole work, began to, to, to put doubts into, into all this project. The person began to say, did we really pray about it? Did God really say that he wants to rebuild this church? And then as a result of that, the leadership began to, you know, be uncertain. The, the, the plans began to, to be shelved. And so it was put on hold. And what was worse, it was the churches down the road happened to also did the replanning project. And they went off ahead successfully. So yes, words do hurt us. They can cause doubts. They can cause us to have uncertainty. And that was what the enemy was doing to Nehemiah and the people. We find next that Sembalat next reviewed the people's faith and their worship in God. Will they offer sacrifice? You know, these words really challenge the people over their God. Simply, Sembalat was telling Nehemiah and the people, you know, you're going to do this to offer God? Really, is God here? Is your God present in your midst? In the midst of all this negative situation where, where the temple is, 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 is ruined, the walls is, is, um, is broken, is God really here? Is God really caring for you? Does God really cry out, hear your cries in your prayers? Sembalat was ridiculing the people's faith and their worshipping God. And you find that finally in the last two questions, where he says, will they finish up in a day? Will they revile the works, the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? These last two questions suggest that the Jews didn't even know how difficult the task was, and that in time, even if they were to continue doing this work, they would eventually call it quits. It was simply to ridicule their will. It was simply to say that you don't have the gumption, you don't have the tenacity to want to complete the task. But you know, amazingly, we are told that despite of all this ridicule and jeering and mockery, despite all these threatening works, 
We find that in verse 6, we are told that the, rebuild, the rebuilding would prevail. It continued on. And amazingly, we are told that the walls was joined together to half its height. That despite of all that was going on, the people still focused on the work and they managed to build it to half its height. And as both the enemies of God saw the progress of the work, naturally they would become angry. And so a second plan of opposition came up. And what was the second plan? We are told in verse 8, they plotted a secret attack against Jeremiah. Now, <clears throat> you know that any news or rumors of a potential war is a terrifying one, isn't it? You know, just ask the Ukrainians, or maybe recently, just ask the Taiwanese. You know, when you see enemy troops all around, rumors of wars are going to happen, it can be terrifying. It can be fearful. And as for the Jews, it is one thing to know the danger that threatens, but quite another to stand with weapon in one hand and to call out when the enemy breaks through. This was the reality that Nehemiah and the Jews were facing. <clears throat> but the sobering question for us is this. Is it possible that when you hear of all these opposition, is it possible that we, you and I, that we can be the opposition to the work of God? Reflect this for a moment. Is it possible that you and I, we can be the opposition to what God wants to do in this church, in our lives? Now hear me out. I'm not accusing anyone, but I'm just merely making a statement for us to reflect on. You see, the truth of the matter is, we can be without realizing it. We can be guilty of doing this, and we are guilty when our attitude is like that of Sembalat and Tobiah. When we oppose the purpose, when we oppose what God will is for us in the church. And bear in mind, Sembalat and Tobiah, they were from, they were part of the community. They were not outside of the community. They were part of the community. And yet they opposed what God wanted them to do. You see, we are guilty when we begin to resist our leader's direction and guidance. And really the answer to this question, there's really two answers and respond to this question. If this is true of us, that we may be guilty of to be opposition to the work of God, if that is true of us, then I think the answer for us is that it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to turn to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and start afresh because we have a God who's willing to forgive, a God who's willing to bring us back. And secondly, if the answer is no, that yeah, you know, we are supporting what God is wanting to do in our midst, then I say, praise the Lord. I congratulate you. I'll say to you, let's continue to keep up the good work. Let's continue to rise up and build the church that God wants us to do. So moving along, what now would we have done if we were in Nehemiah's shoes? I'm sure many of us, you know, we have our own ways of wanting to deal with the opposition that we encountered. But I'm afraid many of us, including myself, would have done quite the opposite of what Nehemiah would have done. 
But today we see that this man responded and dealt with the resistance that was thrown to him. And as we learn from what he did, let it be an important application for all of us in learning how to overcome the many oppositions that is thrown into our lives. And so what did he do? We find that very prominently in both of these instances, when the opposition came, what did, how did Nehemiah climb over the bumps? We are told twice that he went to the Lord in prayer. And once again, this proof that he is a man of prayer. And all of us as leaders and as Christians, we must learn to trust and turn to God in prayer in the midst of all these oppositions. But the question is, do we do so only at the last resort? You know, do we only turn to God in prayer after we try all means and, and abilities, you know, and always, and yet it doesn't work and the opposition still remains? Then we turn to God in prayer. Note that this was not Nehemiah's way. Nehemiah's way was the moment problem came, he turned to God in prayer. Like Philip Melanchthon, the German Lutheran reformer, when faced with trouble and perplexity, what did he do? We are told that, and I quote what he says here, that trouble and perplexity drive me to prayer, and prayer drives away perplexity and trouble. What a wonderful quote, isn't it? That when problems come your way, you turn to God in prayer, and prayer will turn away all these problems. And so we find Nehemiah, like Philip Melanchthon, that's what he did. Upon hearing the mocking of Sembalat, verse 5 tells us he turned to God in prayer. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And then further on in verse 9, he continues to pray. He says, And we prayed to our God. So Nehemiah overcome opposition by turning to God in prayer. But perhaps what is shocking is the content in Nehemiah's first prayer. It seems here that Nehemiah was not asking God to fight for the enemy for him. But if you look closely, it seems that he was requesting a damnation over the enemy. And how can we reconcile such a prayer when Jesus himself tells us that we ought to love our enemies? Well, let me share with you two thoughts on this issue. Firstly, we must recognize that it is natural for all godly leaders to be upset and angry, especially when God's intentions are halted. Remember, Nehemiah was a man who was concerned for the things of God. And if you're concerned for the things of God and the things of God is being affected by enemies, you would naturally be angry. It's just like coming to the church. If you see someone walking in the church, you know, he, he's destroying disrespect to the sanctuary, he's eating, he's drinking, he's making a mess, would you be angry? If you have the things, if you have the concern for the things of God, you would be angry. And so Nehemiah was just simply expressing that. In fact, we learned that Jesus himself, he was angry at the cleansing of the temple when he overturned the tables of those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Why? Because they were not keeping the house of the Lord holy. And so what we learned from Nehemiah here was that he was simply being honest with God. He was crying out to God. 
saying that, God, how can this be done? And the point here is that we can express this anger, but only in an appropriate and sinless way. And that was what Nehemiah was expressing here in this prayer. Secondly, we find that in this prayer, Nehemiah was not requesting personal vengeance, though it sounded like, like he was. But rather, he was here making a plea to God's judgment on his enemies. Remember, Sembalat and Tobiah had resisted the work of God? They both didn't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt because they didn't want the glory of God to be restored. And hence, the opposition against the Jews was, in reality, opposition against God. And so when Nehemiah prayed that God would judge their sinful and wicked ways, he was merely asking God to bring judgment upon the enemies, that their plans will fail to materialize. So the first thing that Nehemiah did to overcome opposition was to pray. Secondly, how did, what else did Nehemiah do? We are told that he climbed over the bumps of the opposition by focusing on the task that was ahead of him. You see, a good leader is one who keeps his focus despite the opposition that is all around. And take the example again of George Whitfield. We are told that when the church closed its doors on him, this man didn't lose focus. He didn't give up hope. Whitfield knew that his ultimate goal, his vocation, was to proclaim the gospel. And he kept this focus in mind despite of the opposition. And this is why if you read the history of George Whitfield, you find that he's one of the central figures in the great evangelical awakening in both Britain as well as in North America. And similarly, you find Nehemiah didn't allow himself to be detoured, to be distracted from his work by going into a heated argument or debate with the enemy. No. Instead, what did he do? He focused on the work. He trusted that God had seen, had heard what the enemy was up to, and he knew that God was mighty enough to deal with them in his own time and his own way. Nehemiah knew that God had entrusted this ultimate goal to get the wall of Jerusalem being built, and his strategy was simply to ensure that the people had the same mindset. No wonder we find in verse 6 that the wall was built half its height. And we are told that the reason for this was because the people had a mind to work. And don't be surprised that because of this focus, the result of this was that the wall was eventually finished in an incredible 52 days. And so as we end, let me summarize for us three vital lessons that we can take away as we learn from Nehemiah how to overcome oppositions. Firstly, know for a fact that God's work, whatever we do, whatever we do for God, will always face oppositions. And as you can see, it doesn't matter what work we may be doing for the Lord. You may be serving in a ministry, you may be a missionary full-time, or you may be, you know, just doing your own work wherever God has placed you. But the moment you are God's servant, you will experience opposition along the way. And know that behind all this opposition is none other than the devil himself. 
You see, as long as Nehemiah was not affected by the news of the situation back home, Satan remained quiet. As long as the people in Jerusalem were content with this sad state of affair, the enemy will leave them alone. As long as the church don't rise up, Satan is happy. But you see, the moment Nehemiah and the Jews begin to have concern for the things of God, the moment they begin to start rebuilding the wall and wanting to bring God's glory back, that's where the enemy will become active. So God's work, number one, will always face opposition. Point number two, despite the opposition, know that God always uses this opposition for good. Though Satan may use these problems to disrupt the work, the encouragement we can get is that God will use them as tools to build up His people. The opposition came, brought the best out of Nehemiah and the people. And we find that through it, Nehemiah's faith in God grew. In chapter 2, verse 2, we are told that when he was first assigned to the task, as he approached the Persian king, it was said here that he was very afraid. However, as he continued to see God's hand at work, you find that his trust in God as the all-powerful God and who's able to meet all his needs and problems increased so much so that in the midst of opposition, he always turned to his God in prayer. And this leads us to the final remark, that prayer overcomes opposition. So coming to God in prayer and allowing him to deal with the opposition is the best way to climb over the bumps of opposition. Nehemiah certainly thought so. And as he turned to the Lord in prayer, in every of the situations that he encountered, we find that God helped him to overcome it, and God gave him the success. So today as we close, know that whatever problems or oppositions you may be facing, know that with God's help, the bombs are what we climb on. That we can always turn to Him in prayer. And whatever problems you may be facing today, whatever mountains, whatever storms you may be facing, know that we have a God who's always there to pick us up, to help us, to be there when we turn to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You, Lord, that truly in the midst of any opposition, any struggles that we may be going through, you are there to always carry us. So we thank you that we can always rely on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.